Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is Wednesday, August the 16th, 2017, and this is episode 2066 of the Survival Podcast. It's a Wednesday, it's time for an interview, and guess who's today's interview, we ha who we have an interview with today? The man himself, the man that has probably done more for sustainable agriculture, raising awareness of the problems in our food system, raising awareness of the primary hurdles in our, our food system for small producers, which of course is government and bureaucracy, and more to prove what can be done in an environmentally conscious way and a profitable way at the same time. Many of you know there is no person that I could be talking about right now other than the man himself, Joel Salatin. We will have him on in just a bit to talk about all those things and more. Before we do, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day number one today is BulkAmmo.com. Now look, guys, I know that you guys know you need ammo for your guns or all you have are overpriced clubs, right? But why BulkAmmo.com? Because all of the common carolers that you probably are looking to get your hands on, they have them there, they have them at good price, and they have them with lightning-fast shipping. If you can save a buck or two, you know, going down to the, the, the Walmart or whatever, you're going to get it back in time and efficiency because, you know, when am I going to go down there and are they going to have it in stock and, oh, I got stuff to do this weekend and I really need to pick up some more ammo for the range trip next week. And you, you, you just order it and, like, within a day or two, it's in your front door, man. Check them out, bulkammo.com. Next up, selfrelianceMagazine.com. I love Self Reliance Magazine. Um, something kind of sad's happening, for me anyway. I've been a subscriber to Backwoods Home Magazine since 1993. I think it started in 89, but I've been a subscriber since 93. Uh, what would that be? 14 years. Backwoods Home Magazine is going to have its... I just got the, the second to the last edition. It's going to have its last edition... Uh, the end of this year, they they're they're kind of throwing the towel in. They've realized that you know that magazine was built for the age before digital, and they've evolved into a quarterly called Self Reliance Magazine that they're taking kind of the ship forward with. And I'll tell you what: sometimes a business can adapt, and sometimes what a business needs to do is build a new product to adapt. That's what they've done with Self-Reliance Magazine. I am blown away at some of the new contributors and some of the old friends that are still there. The quality of the content, uh, how much content there is per ep ep uh, edition, kind of upping the production value, and not just being something, hey, I could have got this at a blog somewhere online, actually being something valuable enough to have a subscription to. Check them out at self-reliancemagazine.com. Again, Self-Reliance Magazine from the same folks that brought you Backwoods Home for almost 20 years. They've kind of shifted gears to that. Check them out. Uh, next up, let's take a look at the year in history. Uh, we are up to the year 46. I have one segment from, from David Verne. It is Thracia becomes a Roman province. Okay, I'm going to do my best to say this guy's name. Rometicalis, the king of Thracia, the area around modern-day Bulgaria, Greece, and Turkey, dies this year. 
Claudius ends Thrasius' client status, fully incorporating the territory as a Roman province. There were few urban centers making the province difficult to govern, but as road networks were built and expanded, the province prospered under Roman rule. The empire had many different peoples in it by this point, and in a few decades, the empire will see its first emperor from outside Italy. My take by David Verne, the Roman Empire was probably one of the best places to live in the ancient world. As long as the Civil War wasn't going on, roads and aqueducts were built, and under imperial reforms, taxes became less oppressive than the late Republican era. As Tiberius said, we want to fleece the sheep, not skin them. Taxes at this point were a flat income tax from anywhere between 1% and 3%, with tariffs and other taxes on a local level. Sanitation was important and was built into a carefully planned city. Trade flourished in Thracia and as an important area between western and eastern halves of the empire. In a few hundred years, the Emperor Constantine will build a new capital for the empire here. The city, of course, is Constantinople. I just think it's interesting that the Romans did all that they did with an income tax of 3%. I'll tell you what a low-income tax does. A low-income tax reduces the capacity of a nation to wage war. You want to know why they never went all the way to the north of the British Isles? You want to know why they never went all the way into Germania? Because you had a limited capacity to make war. And it's, a lot of that stems from the ability of, of, of a government to tax. There's plenty of uh, revenue to defend an empire, but not so much for expanding it beyond a certain point, unless that expansion makes sense, and that would mean that the people that are there kind of are okay with it, like these folks... Um, in Thracia. I, uh, I, I don't know that that still makes it okay, but it sure makes it the way that it was and the way that it is. I, how, how would you like to trade our current income tax system for a flat income tax of 1% to 3%? Let me ask you another question. What do you think it would do for our economy? Now, we'll talk about things actually kind of like that in just a second with Mr. Salatin. Before we do that, though, let's go ahead and uh, remind you guys about the Survival Podcast Member Support Brigade. Again, I'm not really going to tell you to join the brigade uh, this week. I just want to remind you again, we're going to be doing an upgrade on Saturday to the members area, so the site might be down from about 8 to noon. Uh, that may affect some people to auto-renew during that time, but we picked that time window because PayPal doesn't generally run auto-renewals during that time. And uh, the new brigade will be out Monday. And if you're thinking about joining, hold off till Monday. That's all I'm saying. You'll probably be glad that you did. I have a special deal coming on Monday to celebrate the new uh, the new system, assuming that nothing goes wrong. Here's the good news. Let's say something goes really wrong. Well, it'll just stay the way that it is until we figure it out. So it's not like it's going to blow anything up. But, you know, it's always scary when you come off an old system to a new one. Anyway, with that, I'm really excited about having our special guest on today. He was with us years ago, I guess four or five years ago. And I reached out to him, and he was good enough to come on the show. Uh, this time he's reached out to us. He's got a lot of new things going on he wants to talk about. We're not going to talk so much about farming from a mechanical like how-to standpoint today, but the food system as a whole, government as a whole, libertarian worldview, a lot of great stuff with a guy that's really made an incredible impact on the world. And with that, I want to say, hey, Joel, man, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Hey, great. Thank you for having me. Uh, Joel, I doubt there's very many people out there in my audience that don't know who you are, but with our audience size and getting new people every day, there may be a few that are not totally familiar with your work. So could you give us like the, the, the two or three minute elevator speech on who you are and what you do? <laughs> okay. 
Uh, well, I'm a, I'm a beyond organic farmer here in the Shenandoah Valley, uh, second generation here on this piece of land. And um, we produce salad bar beef, picker pork, pastured poultry, that's meat, eggs, uh, duck, and turkey, and uh, rabbit, and forestry products, and honey, and um, uh, anything else that we can, that is nailed down that we can sell and try to pay the taxes. And um, we market, we direct market to about uh, 5,000 individual families, about 50 restaurants. Uh, a couple retail outlets, the farmer's market, and um, about 20 of us uh, work full-time on the, on the farm to make it run. So it's a direct market, uh, pasture-based. Everything's on pasture. We move it around uh, from paddock to paddock uh, daily or almost daily, and um, it's all pasture-based and GMO-free. Um, you know, we don't use chemicals. We use compost and... We're real weird. <laughs> I love weird is the word I would use. I think amazing is the word I would use for some of the stuff I've seen about your operation. Can you tell people a little bit about how you ended up in this lifestyle? Like, uh, you know, how did this all start out for you? Well, um, I've got, I've got, uh, I've got, I've got heresy in my genes. I guess my my grandfather, my dad's dad, was a charter subscriber to. Rodale's Organic Gardening and Farming magazine when it first came out in what 1949, and uh, and then my dad got it from him and I got it from him and so um, I just say you know weirdness is in our genes going way way back. I, I uh, we always said my dad was organic before Rachel Carson wrote Silent Spring, but my dad was an economist uh, by training, and I think he came to this as much as an economist as an environmentalist. Um, he, he saw the chemical, the chemical farming approach as being essentially an economic treadmill that, that you couldn't get off of because you kept having to use, you know, more toxic stuff, more of it, more expensive, and it just sucked you in like basically a, a drug addiction. Hmm. And um, and so we started. Uh, he we started looking around and well, what are the you know what are the temples? What do you see in nature? How does you know how does how does natural abundance work? And uh, you know it's really not that complicated. I mean you know it's it, there are animals. Animals move. I mean just to say animals move is you know heresy in our today's uh, agricultural orthodoxy. Um, uh, carbon doesn't move very far. Carbon moves in situ. Uh, so you know leaves fall. Grass falls over. Uh, cows poop, deer poop, you know, I mean, it, 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 you, don't, you don't ship carbon very far, um, and, and, uh, In nature, if, the, if you can see the dirt in nature, something bad happened, right? I mean, it's yeah, the ground right, is covered. Right. Yeah, yeah, nature, nature's toward perennials, not annuals, so nature likes to be covered, like, like you want to see vegetation uh, on the soil surface, uh, nature's highly... Uh, relationally complex. It's not monocrop, monospeciation. Mono it's 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 uh, you know highly integrated and relationally complex. Uh, it's it's highly participatory. You know, no frog sits on the edge of the pond and says, hmm, "I don't think I'll participate today." Uh, you know, <laughs> he doesn't tell the other frogs they have to either. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, and and so so um, uh, he, he realized. 
that, that these are, you know, these are tried and true templates. They've been, they've been with us for a long, long time. And so how do we, you know, how do we mimic those templates? And that's essentially what we've tried to do on the farm. Fortunately, now we have technology, uh, cool things like, you know, water pipe and electric fence and bandsaw mills so we can make portable shelters out of Tinker Toys. And, uh, and, and we can do things um, that, you know, that, that humankind has never been able to do before to more closely mimic the kind of migratory, choreographic, multi-speciated, synergistic abundance that, that nature had. Um, you know, it, it should give us all pause to realize that 500 years ago, North America produced more nutrition than it does today, even with, you know, irrigation, John Deere, chemical fertilizer. Um, you know, the, the herds, the herds were massive. The flocks were massive. You know, Audubon sat under a tree, said he couldn't see the sun for three days because it blotted out the, because the, the flock of birds flying over blotted out the sun. Has anybody seen a flock of birds blot out the sun for three days? You know, the, the, the abundance was just, um, was just incredible. And so, uh, so here we are. How do we, how do we mimic that? And that's, that's been our stocking trade. Yeah, before we move on there, I mean, I want to kind of point something out when you're talking about the abundance of North America. Like, one of the things I learned recently, and I knew there were a lot of elk, because everybody fixates on the buffalo, right? And you brought the right. birds. There were elk in every state that we currently identify with lines in the, in North America other than Florida and Alaska. Elk. Yes, that's correct. There were elk in Texas. There were elk in New Mexico. There were elk in Pennsylvania, Virginia. Yep. I mean, yep. Georgia. Mm -hmm. Georgia had elk. And, like... I mean, you're talking about the natural analog to a cow. We think buffalo that way, but buffalo are generally much bigger than a meat cow. Elk are right in that size. So we had basically this massive, and it wasn't like the giant herds of buffalo. It was much more like what what you and people like yourself do with smaller herds of beef cattle moving around, each in their own kind of autonomous, you know, Bachelor and uh, groups, and then the the harem groups with the, the the senior the you know the senior bull and that type of thing, and and that mimicry was you know everywhere, and I think people yeah. don't have any clue. And the other thing you made me think of it, it kind of hurts your heart when you think about it. I remember reading about this guy who left a diary behind. He was working out in the West when they were put in the silver mines, and he was talking about. And I might even have heard this in one of your talks. As they were cutting trees from the mountains for timbers for the mines, they were watching the creeks dry up. Uh -huh. And my God, I mean, you, you, you realize what you said is exactly true. We produced more by doing nothing than we produce now with Herculean effort. Yeah, that's right. It, uh, yeah, another good one is to realize, depending on who you read, up to 8% of the North American landscape was covered in beaver ponds. Imagine the hydration. I've been down in uh, New Mexico, those very arid areas. They say, oh, absolutely, down here. Can you imagine 8% of New Mexico in beaver dam uh, uh, you know, water? Uh, it, it, would, it would be a veritable Eden uh, to have all that water, ter uh, water terrace storage. So, um, yeah, there were, you know, what, 200 million uh, beavers? Wow. Um, uh, you know, the, 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 they were eating as much, uh, as much biomass as every as all Americans eat in salad every day, uh, yeah, these were these were massive. so. You know, when we say when we say America produced more nutrition, we don't mean that there were more people here. Sure, uh, you know there were there were a couple million wolves, each of which needed twenty pounds of meat a day to to live on. Sure, so it's not that it wasn't that it was all humans, 
but but the the actual you know the actual nutrition of the land um, of of the space was producing more nutrition than it is today, and that you know that that should cure that should cure hubris wherever you find it. Um, the next question, I'm pretty sure I know how you're going to answer it, considering one of my, my most prized books is a signed copy of Everything I Want to Do is Illegal. But what what is the biggest impediment you have and other you know farmers have that want to do things this natural way, re-emulate nature, etc., to their success? Well, the, the biggest impediment is, uh, is government interference. And a lot of that is not necessarily because we don't want to use chemicals. That's pretty much answer. They don't care. They don't care whether sure. you, you know, vaccinate a chicken or don't vaccinate a chicken. I mean, generally. Um, the, the problem is that innovation requires embryonic market space. Um, you know, it, it's a fact of entrepreneurship and innovation uh, that, that, that you have to start with a prototype. And a prototype needs to be a, as small as possible so that it doesn't destroy the mothership, so that it's well, so that it's doable. You know, you, you can't um, you can't you can't launch an aircraft carrier until you know how to make a, a rowboat. All right, and so um, and so a lot of this is, has nothing to do with actual uh, uh, you know chemical free or anything like that. It's simply the re- that that those of us who are in that chemical free edge are necessarily the outliers, if you will, to use Malcolm Gladwell's uh, term. And we're the outliers, we're the innovators. You know, Tyson, Cargill, um, you know, they're the, you know, Walmart, you know, they're, they're the old guard, and we're the innovators. And um, so we need, we need access to be, we need freedom to be different um, in order to occupy this space, and the problem with um, with re- government regulations is a they're not very friendly to anything different, but b the regulations are extremely scale prejudicial. Mm. Now, I mean, for, let's say for example, you want to make some bologna. All right. Well, it's it, it's one thing. So the government says, well, you got to have, you know, in order to uh, be licensed to sell, uh, you need a you need a certain kind of thermometer. Well, this thermometer costs two thousand dollars. Well, if, if if you're making a tractor trailer load of bologna, a two thousand dollar thermometer is a spit in the ocean. But if you're making a five gallon bucket full in your kitchen sink as a prototype to see if you can see if your neighbors like it, if your recipe is any good. A two thousand uh, dollar thermometer is not only inappropriate, but it it just stopped the whole project. And this and this happens over and over and over again, where we have um, regulations of, of of practice rather than outcome. Hmm. No, nobody nobody's checking to see if our chickens are clean or not. They're just asking. Do you have this size equipment, this type of thermometer, this number of of stainless steel, and you know this many lumens in, in your light bulb? The fact that we can be 25 times cleaner, demonstrably by outcome-based uh, empirical analysis, 
doesn't, you know, uh, uh, doesn't factor in. The question is, do we have, you know, uh, changing lockers, toilets for our employees, even if we don't have employees, and and all this other, you know, rigmarole. Distance uh, of one building from another. I mean, it's it's insane. Yeah. Well, it certainly is insane, and it has nothing to do with, you know, with quality. Uh, and, and, and not only that, but, but I'll, I'll just move on a little bit on this to demonstrate that it's not just food safety issues, it's, it's a lot of other things. For example, our kind of farming where we have strategically and aggressively, I may add, substituted management skill for uh, energy intensity, capital intensity, uh, pharmaceutical intensity, we have substituted all that with observational skill and management skill, which requires people. So we, we need, in order, to, in order to not have all those things on the farm, we need to have more people on the farm. Well, people on the farm they need to live somewhere. Well, you know, you can, by, by right, we don't, even, we don't even have to get a building permit. If we want to build a big shed and store uh, chemicals in, and machinery, we don't even need a building permit. But if we want, if we want one tiny house to house a farm worker in a little tiny house, suddenly we have to get rezoned because you can't have a building in, a, in an agriculture zone. Um, we need to get, you know, you're starting to deal with septic and plumbing and building codes and OSHA and and uh, 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 you know housing requirements, minimum wage. FICA, uh, immigration status, I mean, there's a, there's a whole, <laughs> you know, there's 10,000 page, pages of code to bring in a person as opposed to a football-sized field building full of chemicals and machinery. No, I get what you're saying, and I also kind of see it as like, there's this world that seems like it's the most oppressed And it's, it's, it's your world and it's people aspiring to get to where you're at. You're not trying to be this mega farm, but you're no. not real, real tiny either. So, like, for instance, I can't get poultry processed around here for my customers at all. I'd have to process on farm, which the size of our operation doesn't make sense for us, or I have to sell it alive and let them take it to the processor. And I don't do a lot of that, but I do turkeys every year because they're – They're so dad gone profitable. They're good for the land. People like them. They, we, we just sell them to your. We have we have a little duck farm, and we sell them to our duck egg customers. It's it's right. easy to do. But I can only get so many people that are willing to come pick up a forty pound broad breasted bronze turkey and take it fifteen miles out to Weatherford to get them pro, uh, processed. If I wanted to scale that, and I could certainly raise a hundred here, but I can't mm -hmm. get a hundred customers like that. But I could take a trailer and take them all down there, but I can't do that because they, they would basically have to have a full-time FDA employee. Now, that really hurt me because I have other things I'm doing. I'm not trying to move into farming as a full-time income. I do it kind of as a hobby farm and to support the local food movement. But those people that want to emulate what you're doing, it's, it's that crossover point between being this giant commercial you know, chemical ag operation right. And being people that can operate under cottage food laws or maybe process 50 birds on farm or something like that, when they try to move into that point where they can actually pay the bills with it, that's where they seem to run into the red tape like at a mo you know, mo monumentous level. Yeah, well, here's, in other words, you're, you're these people are taking these turkeys to a custom plant. 
Correct. Where it's, where it's custom done, and every package is stamped not for sale. Correct. Okay. So, so uh, for your listeners, I think it's important to parse out that, that this abattoir that you're using, there's, there's three levels in America. One is federal inspection, one is state inspection, and one is what's called custom. And that's where I take an animal that I've raised or I've acquired live, and I take it in there and have and, and say, "Could you butcher this for me?" Um, that's that's custom, and that does not require um, an inspector on the floor on site to check it out, because that's simply being viewed as a service, um, a service that they're providing. In other words, the liability you're taking in a live animal, and uh, and so you're accepting liability. It's your animal. It's your animal. All right, so. So your your point is it's it's so well taken because what's the difference what's the difference between um, between a person a person coming to your farm and saying I want that turkey or give me those two and I'll take it down here to the processor and a person coming to your farm and saying boy I like what you're doing. When you process those turkeys, um, could I get one? There's, it doesn't make any sense. <laughs> there's, there's, there's not a not one single bit of sense in, in the difference in that transaction. There's no sense at all, you know. And, and so people like us, when we ask for some exemptions on these things, look, we're not asking to put our stuff in Walmart. We're not asking to export it to Bangladesh. We're simply saying, look, among neighbors and among Voluntary consenting adults, can we transact commerce without a bureaucrat getting in the middle of it? At the end of the day, at the end of the day, my, my ability to, to exercise choice, and I'm using some pretty you know, volatile words, consenting adults, <laughs> choice. voluntary <laughs> choice, I mean, you know, today, look at all the things we can, you know, we, we, you can even choose which sex you want to be, um, but, but, but you, can't, you can't choose to come to my house and, and get a T-bone steak unless a bureaucrat gets involved. Yeah. That's, not only is it un-American, it's unreasonable and it's nonsensical, which is driving the whole food sovereignty movement, which got its start in Sedgwick, Maine, several years ago, Maine sued Sedgwick, said, no, you can't have food sovereignty in Sedgwick. And uh, just a month ago, the governor of Maine signed the first statewide uh, law that says uh, a locality can create food sovereignty laws and the state won't sue them. Wow. It'll be interesting to see now uh, whether the feds will come in on them uh, because the state was taking the brunt of this. Now we'll see if, if the federal comes in on it. But basically, the food sovereignty law says Within the confines of our jurisdiction, among consenting voluntary adults, they can exercise their freedom to, to, to um, transact food commerce without any government agency being involved whatsoever. So if you want to sell a gallon of raw milk from a cow you're milking or, uh, or a, a pound of bologna from some homemade bologna you made, uh, a pot pie from, a, you know, from your garden, uh, chickens and, and vegetables, all that can occur without any government oversight whatsoever. Because the problem is, whenever you get government oversight, what you get is a codification 
of accepted practice, which is always prejudicial against innovation and small operators. Always. You know, and you, you correct me if you think I'm wrong here, but my feeling is, especially federal regulations, they don't seem to me like they're actually that concerned with preventing any bad food from getting on the market. Like when the Food Safety Modernization Act came out, I think I'm one of the few people that actually read it. And it seemed like it was actually more about, well, when, when contaminated food does get into the system, we need to be able to isolate where it came from so we can get a handle on it and stop it from spreading. So we know that these you know, infected green onions came from this place in Mexico, and we need to know every place they are in the system so we can shut that down, recall it, and correct the problem so no one else gets sick. That's actually kind of a reasonable-sounding thing. But if someone comes to me and buys a turkey or comes to you and buys a T-bone, there is no question where it came from. It's not like it's hard to figure out where it came from. And, right. and, and to me, that's what, like the government actually seems more concerned with control of when something happens. They, they almost seem to be pragmatic enough to say, yeah, especially with commercial, we're going to have some infections and stuff like that. We're not going to prevent it all, but we need to be able to isolate it. And I just don't see that as a problem, like what you were saying, neighbors in business with neighbors. You know where you got it. You got it from me. Sure, absolutely. And, but you have to understand that the world, the world that these folks live in, it is a world of, uh, of, of subterfuge, cutting corners, and, and whatever. Clever speak, obfuscation. <laughs> a lot of words we can use here, but, but um, it, it's, a, it's a real clandestine world. And, um, and, and, so, and, and so they assume that you're like that, I'm like that. That, that everything is like that, and they don't understand that you know you and I uh, don't have um, three Philadelphia lawyers on retainer to act as a veil of protection between us and a disgruntled customer. <laughs> um, and, and, and so, and so, this this one size fits all. Um, uh, while it yeah, it certainly seems well intended. Well, you know, a lot of things are well intended. But, but they're actually a cure that's worse than the disease. Or, or at least to make a separate, you know, to, to carve out a place, you can do it numerically. You can, I mean, I would be happy even to submit to, you know, to testing. Make benchmarks, and you have a little R2-D2 on site, you know, and you take a swab test, send it in, and it immediately goes to a lab somewhere, and you have benchmarks. And if it hits this benchmark, a little red light comes on, and the... You know, burger crap puts down his, you know, coke and his donut, and oh, you know, comes to life and says, "Ooh, we got to go check this outfit out," because they just, you know, passed the threshold. I mean, um, boy, and I bet you'd do the same thing I would. I'd put my meat up against the commercial meat industry any day in that test. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, we, we've, we, we've actually done it and uh, and found that the the bacteria culture we're 25 times cleaner without any chlorine than what the supermarket has even with chlorine wow so so uh there's there's no there's no comparison um and so the 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 bottom line on these things is that they actually just make it very difficult they make it very difficult for small operations and innovative operations to get their to get their leg in the market to get their foot in the door and that's one reason why I would like to see, uh, I would like to see a, 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 a food emancipation proclamation to free food from the enslavement, from the shackles of this industrial paradigm, to recognize that there is there is a place for community-friendly choice out here among consenting adults 
to exercise their freedom and their liberty to choose what to fuel their body. What do you say to the well-meaning person that says, but we have to have regulations or people are going to get sick, people are going to be dying, that type of thing? My answer to them is, as first, the, the first answer is, as if nobody's getting sick or dying from government-inspected food. <laughs> that, that's, that's a pretty big if. And number two is you're assuming, you're making a huge assumption um, that, that we're going to have that. But you have no data, no place. All you have is Upton Sinclair in 1906 who wrote The Jungle uh, about the, the, the corporate you know, industrial food system and, and its, its uh, debauchery. Um, you know, that's, your, that's your memory. But since then, look at what we have now. We have indoor plumbing. We have stainless steel. We have microscopes. We have, uh, you know, Q-tips, cotton swabs, I and mean, we got all sorts of cool, you know, infrared frequency reading. I mean, there's all sorts of, 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 of monitoring and infrastructure uh, understanding that's come on since then. And so um, what's wrong? What's wrong with letting somebody just try it? And that's what I'm so excited now about Maine, having this now there's, there's 20 localities in Maine with this food sovereignty uh, law, and they're expecting another 20 in the next year. It's just going to go fast. And the beauty of that is it's going to give us a track record for, um, it's going to give us a track record for the quality of this food system. The fact is, how many recalls have there been at farmer's markets? You know, how, how many how many E. coli outbreaks, how many avian influenza outbreaks have there been on backyard poultry? None. None. And and and, and so... Uh, you, you'll like this, Joel, when we had the, uh, the the whole avian flu thing and eggs were going into shortage and all, and, and, and right. all the local media looked us up and wanted to come out and talk to us with our ducks about what we were doing with avian influenza. I said, well, you're welcome to come out, but what we're doing is absolutely nothing different than we always do. Mm-hmm. We don't right. care. We're not worried about it. It doesn't impact us. Right, right, right. Well, when that uh, high-path avian influenza came through um, um, Asia, Bangladesh and Thailand and all that there several years ago, Great Britain did a study, and they found that if a chicken, if a chicken gets two blades of fresh grass a day, they're immune to high-path avian influenza. Oh, my God. Yeah. Now, you know, you would think, you would think that the industry would go apoplectic over that and say, hey, we got to, you know, we got to have this. Even if they didn't pasture, just throw grass in there. I mean, come on. I mean, it's... Yeah, yeah, just, just, just throw grass in. Yeah, just uh, mow, it, mow it and throw it. They'll eat it. I've seen them do it. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but, you know, the, the industry is too, they're too... Um, Whatever, beholden to their paradigm of, of pharmaceuticals and factories to um, you know to appreciate that there is another alternative. So what happens is government oversight always gets codified through the um, what through the through the sieve, if you will, of the over the orthodox parent whatever the orthodox paradigm is. That's what that's the, the filter through which 
the you know the regulation gets codified. Well, that filter is never going to appreciate you know uh, raw milk from a from a grass-based animal milked in the sunshine. Um, you know, with a with two cows, uh, it's never going to look at you know a um, a, a backyard um, a backyard slaughtered beef or, or chicken at an appropriate temperature. With <laughs> you know, it, it's not going to look at that. It, it doesn't it doesn't exist. It doesn't enter their their uh, psyche. And so the the law the law gets written in a way that's very industry friendly and very innovation unfriendly. Well, and isn't that because of, the people that write the laws aren't the Congress, which I guess that's, and that's a little bit good, because, gee, that But, I mean, we think we send senators and congressmen off, and they go put together laws and regulations, and they do all this hard work, and then they hash it out. They don't write this stuff. It's all written by lobbyists who work for the companies. So Tyson and Purdue are writing the legislation that pertain to poultry, and what possible benefit is it to Tyson or Purdue that Joel Salatin produces ten or 15,000 pastured poultry a year? There's no benefit to Tyson for that. So why would they even consider doing anything that would be beneficial to the small farmer? Exactly. In fact, they, they view it as, uh, as competition. In fact, in their paradigm, they view it as, uh, as typhoid Mary and uh, bioterrorism because my unvaccinated, unmedicated chickens are going to commiserate with a red-winged blackbird who's going to carry my, my uh, diseases, and we know we have to have diseases because we're not doing the vaccines and the medications that they're supposed to get. Um, I'm going to take my diseases to their scientific, con environmentally controlled, uh, you know, sophisticated uh, uh, houses and kill their chickens, and um, the farmers are going to lose their farm, Tyson's going to go out of business, and all the children in Bangladesh are going to starve to death because we were so uh, dilatory and negligent that we let a red-winged blackbird come in and rub beaks with one of our chickens. I mean, that's... That's, I think that's their story, but I think they know it's bull, right? I, I think that's their story, but I don't think they actually believe that. That's their, that's their marketing to the people in power to maintain their paradigm. Well, um, you know, I, I, I wouldn't speak to that. I can, I, can tell you, I can tell you that our conventional farming neighbors do, do call us, because I have been called that, bioterrorist, by Oh, my Mary. God. And, and, and so... Uh, you know, I was on a I was on a radio program one time with two guys down in uh, Kansas, and it was it was actually an ambush. I, I mean, I do a lot of radio programs and podcasts and things, and um, usually, you know, like you, um, the, the enemy doesn't usually have me on. But uh, if the enemy's going to have me on, they don't tell me that they're the enemy. And well, these guys were the enemy, and it was an ambush. Anyway, they you know they. Um, they asked me, well, you know, what what do you think what do you think the chickenness of a chicken is? You know, and I said, well, I think the ability to run around and uh, eat grass and find bugs and you know, that sort of thing. I mean, you, know, you think about what 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 you know is exciting for a chicken. And the, and uh, I said, well, what about you? You know, and, and and these two guys said, well, we think the the, the most important thing for the chickenness of the chicken is, is security and safety. So she's never, never can be picked off by a hawk or, or anything like that. You know, complete safety. So they, they were making a case that, 
that the most chicken-friendly environment is a is a cage in a in a factory house. And I thought to myself, I mean, these guys, um, I'm sure they're good patriotic Americans. They probably say the Pledge of Allegiance. They probably uh, even you know quote the Declaration of Independence and use the word liberty. Um, would they would they view that kind of uh, life for the chicken, where it's confined in a cage, um, as being something that allows the chicken to enjoy liberty? Uh, sure, my chickens could get picked off by a hawk. That's if some of some of them do. Um, but to say that the only alternative is is to confine in a cell. Uh, a, a dark cell and 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 that stinks to high heavens and they can't have any freedom whatsoever um, would be like saying, well, man, we we better put all of our all of our children in a, in a cubicle. We don't want any children to climb a tree, be on a swing. Um, you know, you would you would never say that to anybody. And, and, and so so you know, it, it was it was it was good for me to. Engage the other side in such a fundamental difference in philosophy, and I would suggest the hypocrisy of the security, safety, um, the security, safety, liberty kind of uh, argument when it came to the animals, and something that they would never want for their children or want for themselves. Um, they're wanting, they're wanting for the animals. And uh, it was just a you know real interesting thing. So I don't I don't for a minute assume that that Tyson and Cargill and Purdue and whatever that they um, I think they're all sincere people. I, I don't assume that they have any any other agenda other than truth and honesty. And we really need to feed the world. And people like Salatin are really. Uh, playing Russian roulette, that's another word they like to use mm. for me, uh, playing Russian roulette with our food system. Um, I mean, uh, I grew up, you know, we, we, had a, we had a commissioner of agriculture, Mason Carball, here in Virginia uh, for, for years, and uh, he would issue a report every year. And I remember very well, I don't know, 30 years ago, getting a copy of his report, and he said uh, that if we went to organic farming, we just have to decide which half of the world to kill because there's no way we can feed the world. Well, the report was based on an experiment that Virginia Tech had just done on organic farming, where they took these uh, uh, food plots that they've been dumping, you know, two, four, five D and, and, and herbicides and chemicals on for years and years. And oh, let's do an organic setup. So they take these plots and they and the organic uh, corn, uh, they 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 don't do anything to it. They don't. They don't do anything to it, and the ones next door, of course, they give it all the chemical help and herbicides and pesticides and everything else. And at the end, of course, the you know one patches look really good, the other patches look pretty bad, and they harvest and they extrapolate it to all the acres of corn in Virginia and to the world, and say half the world's going to starve to death because of, of what we've just found. This is empirical scientific research. Well, you and I know, you and I know. That a that a, a research plot that's been the subject of, of uh, uh, chemicals 
for 20 years, you don't just suddenly plant a hybrid seed in it and not do anything remedial. That's not organic. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's, that's uh, a setup for failure. It, it doesn't recognize any of the living biological elements of the soil, not to mention residual, you know, residual problems with the chemical. But that's the kind of research, that's the official orthodoxy, that's the official research that's done and is put out here and spouted by, you know, uh, and, it, and it's actually believed by, you know, the people at, in, in the industrial uh, uh, thing. So I don't... See, I think I, you're I, right about the mid-level I, I, people. I don't think, yeah, I don't think they're... Um, I don't think they're pulling your leg. I, I think they really believe what they say. I think a lot of them do, but I don't believe that a researcher that's scientifically trained and knows knows the scientific method could possibly do that study without knowing it's rigged from the beginning. So I think there's somewhere in that chain there's people that are doing it to maintain a monopoly, and maybe I just have a more pessimistic view than you do. But I agree with you. I think the majority of conventional farmers, first of all, you're a farmer, you know. You only have so much time a day to worry about it. You, you rely on the information you're given, just like doctors do with drug reps. And and, and if, if everybody tells you the same thing and everybody knows that, then... Hey, I'm just trying to make my payments at the end of the month, and I can't have any risk to my chicken house or my herd of cattle or whatever it is. And I think the majority of people in the industry absolutely do believe that line of thinking. Yes. Yeah. Oh, uh, no question in my mind. No question in my mind. Whenever, whenever I get around conventional farmers, I mean, shoot, they they even blanch when they find out that we have we allow visitors to our farm. I mean, there's a there's a fairly significant effort right now uh, to eliminate farm visitors, you know, because they're a they're a pathogen hazard. You know, they're going to bring in something, and uh, and you know, the, fact, the fact that we that we encourage visits and have thousands of visitors and they don't have to walk through sheep sheep got to say this carefully sheep dip or put on hazmat suits to come and and, and visit is. Um, Again, it's, it's in that in that mechanical uh, paranoid paradigm. It's Russian roulette with our food system. So let me ask you this, Joel. Let's say that by some weird thing, I was invoked with massive power, and I said, Joel Salatin, I hereby appoint you King of America for a day. Do what thou wilt with the American agricultural system. What would you do? Well, I mean. Um, yeah, it's not the first time I've been asked that question. I think, uh, well, the first thing I do is probably eliminate the USDA. I call it the US duh. Um, no, um, no government agency has ever been success, so successful at annihilating its constituency. And um, so that would be the one thing. But, but the, the second thing, I would, I would absolutely um, create a, an, a food emancipation proclamation to allow any citizen to procure the food of their choice from the source of their choice. And that would, that in and of itself, would open up a virtual explosion of entrepreneurial innovation in the food space. Would some people be charlatans? Absolutely. Would somebody get sick? Absolutely. As if nobody's getting sick today. Um, you know, with uh, Coke and and chlorine and uh, GMOs. So um, 
folks in. That's what I would do in one fell swoop. In other words, I wouldn't outlaw what I don't like. I would simply allow liberty to happen at the grassroots, let choice occur, and then the guys that currently enjoy concessionary, subsidized, uh, interventive protectionism, they have to grovel and fight for their own place in the sun. Those of us that are producing better tasting, transparent, accountable, integrity food would run circles around them. The reason our the reason our bacon is fifteen dollars a pound is not because it costs fifteen dollars a pound to do it. It's because in order to get it done legally at small scale, it has to go to a federal inspector slaughterhouse and it has to go to a curing place. It has to come back here. I mean, if we could kill the pig, cure the pig, and sell the pig right here on the farm, and it never have to get on the interstate or go to any uh, uh, you know specialty houses. You know, we could sell it at competitive prices. At, at, at competitive. The only reason it's expensive and therefore we're called elitists is because we're trying to push a round peg in a square hole. That's the only reason. And that's true for a lot of things, from, from, you know, from workman's comp to whatever. Um, you know, the, the fact that we, the fact that, that our whole tax structure is set up to encourage uh, you to destroy machinery so you can expense it off and, and get uh, depreciation faster. Um, so if you, if you substitute machinery for people, you actually get a tax, a tax help. But if you have a person, the person suddenly comes with all sorts of minimum wage. I mean, can you imagine um, uh, buying a machine at minimum wage? No, that machine, those machines right there, they cannot be purchased for anything under this price. But we put that on people, and therefore we prejudice any business that wants to actually substitute people for machinery. Our whole tax and regulatory environment encourages machinery as opposed to people. And that's, exact, that's exactly opposite. What if I have a business, what if my desire is not to have machinery and use more people? I'm suddenly, <laughs> I'm suddenly having to jump through ten different kinds of hoops and have a totally different uh, economic climate in my product than the guy that uses all the uh, all the concessionary tax advantages of getting rid of people and only using machinery. Yeah, I mean another part of that is what we learned is that if you finance. Farming activities primarily with out-of-the-pocket cash that you've saved up, you end up at a tremendous disadvantage tax-wise compared to borrowing the money. Which I'm I'm not I'm not the oldest guy in the world, but I you know I come from a family I was raised by Depression-era grandparents and, and grandfathers sure. that went through World War II, and I was always taught debt was bad, right? Like I mean, like that you use debt as a tool when you needed to. My my father's a pretty astute businessman. But that in general, debt was bad. And if one could avoid debt, then one should avoid debt because it puts you in a more liquid position, even if you have an exit strategy. But if I'm going to be penalized with tax, right, it, it doesn't make any sense for me not to borrow money. I'm better off borrowing the money. If things go wrong, I'll just declare bankruptcy. And over 10 years, I come out financially ahead by borrowing money. Except that I don't. It looks that way. But then I end up in the, the gerbil wheel trap, which is what it seems like they want. But it, yep. it was amazing to me. Like We could not justify in some instances with some of the operations we did 
not borrowing money to do it because tax-wise we just came out so far ahead. And that's yeah. ridiculous. Oh, yeah, well, it's, 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 um, it's worse than ridiculous. It's actually, it's actually evil. It is because evil. It, because it incentivizes, it incentivizes um, risky behavior. And anything that incentivizes risky behavior um, is, is, well, it, it's, it's not right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I think freeing up people to take risks is great, yeah. but yeah. incentivizing them to take risks that they would otherwise not take and almost pushing them into risks that they would prefer not to take, that's inherently evil. It just seems very, very twisted, and you have to have a lot of power to do it, and then it, then it takes on a whole new connotation of evil because, I mean... If I walk up to you and shove you, that's wrong. But you're a grown man, I'm a grown man. If I walk up and shove a three-year-old child down on the ground, to me that's worse because I've used my position of size and power to specifically victimize somebody weaker than me. And yeah. th when you say evil, that's the first thought I have in, in my mind. It's not just like me manipulating you. It's somebody with incredible power manipulating millions of people simply by how they write something down on a piece of paper. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. And so, uh, you know, it gets back to like what Wendell Berry used to say. He said, what's wrong with us creates more uh, gross domestic product than what's right with us. And, uh, and you know, this, this is very similar to that, where you, you make a system that's inherently risky and inherently um, uh, societally... Um, you know, uh, uh, create societal upheaval, and you actually you actually incentivize the features that make it you know worse on society. That's that's a that's a terrible it's a terrible way to go. You keep using the word um, food sovereignty. Uh -huh. If we could get a legitimate food sovereignty established in our country. We're at least on that kind of local, regional level. We could have protection under that. And it's my body. If I want your cow's milk, that's nobody's business but yours and mine. What impact do you think that would have on our people, our food, our economies, etc.? The impact would be so profound that it's hard to even imagine what it would be. But let, let me give you a couple of impacts. One would be, suddenly, people like us would not, um, would not go to bed at night with our biggest worry being, oh, did we fill out this paperwork right? Is a bureaucrat going to show up tomorrow and accuse us of having a, a word, you know, uh, uh, wrong font type on a label, blah, 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 um, all these things. So it, 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 First of all, it frees your soul and your mind from that kind of of just tyranny. Uh, tyranny, the best word for it. Um, secondly, it would allow market access for thousands and thousands of small-scale cottage entrepreneurs to access their neighbors with food that is competitively priced. Again, you know it. If you could, if you could, with a couple of friends, process those turkeys at home, you know, you could get very, very inexpensive processing equipment now. 
suddenly those hundred turkeys, they don't have to go on a trailer and go anywhere. You just get a couple friends together, and in, in two days you process your turkeys, and if you take the cost of that, the trip down to the custom house, and that all those people are doing all that gas that you're spending, all that, and you're able to do it right there on the farm, and those turkeys are, are processed and packaged uh, and picked up right at the farm where they grew up and never got on, and never went on the road, not only do you eliminate strewing feathers all over the countryside, which the industry says is highly pathogenic, but you also keep all those dollars, and you take that processing and distribution, all those middleman hats, and you're able to wear them. Suddenly, a very, very small farm can make a full-time living uh, on the farm because you can wear the hat of the merchandiser, the processor, the distributor, the, the inventory storage, you know, all that. And, and so what you would see is the, the, because the price could come down so much without having to go through this, this um, labyrinth of oversight, we would, we would take market share up the wazoo from the big operators because the, because the price would be so much more competitive. I mean, 30%, 30% of, the, of our price of our beef and pork is due to government compliance stuff uh, because we're so small. And you take a 30% price disadvantage, you drop that off, suddenly, man, now the janitor, you know, everybody can come and enjoy this kind of food, which leads me to the final thing. The, the biggest loser in this, in this um, food tyranny situation that we have, the biggest loser are the poor, losers are the poor because it inordinately makes integrity food and small-scale innovative food um, arbitrarily and capriciously, we could use the word maliciously, but I'll just say capriciously more expensive and prices it out of the market for every man. So the ultimate, uh, the ultimate egalitarian food procedure that we can do to ensure that even the poorest can eat well is to free up folks like us from these owners of regulations that arbitrarily make our price way higher than it has to be. And in, in, in response to that, people like you and myself get attacked, especially by left-leaning bloggers and what have you, as only raising food for rich people. Yeah. When what we're doing is we're pricing our products so that we can afford to have our operation run efficiently. And, of course, those people would flip their lids if we were paying our labor slave wages. I'm way small, right? But I've got a, a young farmhand that comes here and works for me a few times a week. I pay him 10 bucks an hour. You know, I'm not paying him minimum wage. If I did, they'd, they'd lose their minds. Sure. But if I don't price in his labor... I cannot sustain my product, and therefore I can't be in business and serve anyone. That's right. That's, that's right. Oh, you hit the nail on the head. That's why when, 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 when anybody starts down that pathway of elite, elitism for me, uh, the, the, this, this is where I go. I go to this point quickly. Well, my prices could drop 30% if we weren't besieged 
with a bunch of um, asinine um, uh, federal government regulations. It's primarily federal. It's not state. And 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 so this brings you, of course, to the discussion of states' rights. And and essentially, I'm a you know I'm a I'm a 50 experiment, 50 state experimenter. Uh, it, one of the, the the biggest problem in our country is we have arrogated to the federal level stuff that was supposed to be done at the state level, Agreed. and so the stakes the stakes are so high, you know, you have to get a license to pee or spit, and, and so what happens is since since every since everything you and I can do is now licensed, therefore it's for sale by the government, so it's going to go to the highest bidder. If the federal government didn't control everything we do, uh, uh, so that so that everything we did was was for sale to the highest bidder. If nothing were for sale at the federal government, there wouldn't be people there lobbying to get special concessions. And and not only that, but each state could then run their own experiment. And you could say, well, Utah does it this way. Oh, Minnesota does it this way. Oh, you know what I saw down in Virginia? They do it this way. You could have everything from from cradle to grave. Uh, free government education to a state saying, you know what, education is the responsibility of the family, and it's not any of the responsibility of the state at all. We're not going to charge any taxes. We're going to we're going to we're going to have uh, almost no taxes in this state because we're not going to pay for any education, and we're going to let people buy it on the free market, open market, and the you know the the the, uh, the, the bow-legged Vietnamese Hindu school can have their students and the. You know the uh, tree-hugging, gay, uh, cosmic-worshipping, um, you know, folks can have theirs, and let's see what happens. And and then you would actually be able to experiment. Um, well, and you know what I think that does, Joel, that it's like the most powerful thing about that form of, of basically, and I always have to preface it, I don't mean the party, republicanism, is that it removes the ability to fear merchant what will happen if we allow this? Because when four states are doing it and nothing's broken, the fear merchanting, and we still we still have some of the you know last vestiges of the republic. You see it happen when some states take certain moves toward liberty occasionally. Then other states go, wait a minute. If this if the whole world was going to end and everybody was going to die, then why aren't people dying in states X, Y, and Z? And it opens the public's mind, like you, because what I see a lot of this is fear merchantism. You know, oh, if we let Joel Salton do, and there's thousands of Joel Saltons, people will just be dropping over left and right. Yep. Does it matter that you can test your product and it's 20 times cleaner? Simply yep. matters what the perception is. That's right. That's right. Oh, listen, um, one of the one of the most uh, I've put it in in I don't remember. I think I put it in everything I want to do is illegal. Um, but anyway, you know where I quoted verbatim a letter from, you know, our head inspector here in Virginia who said, we cannot trust, we cannot trust the consumer to make any food choice. They're, they're too ignorant. They're, what, a, what an incredibly arrogant state for a bureaucrat to say, you know, they, 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 can't, they can't trust somebody. And, and, and the fact is that when you, when you start allowing these kind of experiments to happen, Think of all the different nuances of experimentation and innovation um, that you know that can be developed in that kind of a scenario. Um, so, yeah, I, uh, we we have we haven't had we haven't had freedom for so long. Very few people even understand it or know 
what it could possibly be. Put an animal in a cage long enough, and when you open the door, he won't leave. I mean, yeah. that's that's the fundamental. Yeah, yeah. yeah, that, that, yeah that, that's for sure. That's for sure. And you know, uh, here in Virginia, for example, we we you know it's illegal to even sell one glass of raw milk. Well, twenty states allow the sale of raw milk. We go down there to Virginia General Assembly and say, look, here's the twenty states that allow raw milk. I mean, Missouri, Missouri, raw milk. Uh, as much as you want, um, just just you can't put it in a store. But if, if direct selling it, if you're direct selling it, it's pretty much unimpeded. And, and, and down here in Virginia, they say, oh, if we do that, why well, there wouldn't be enough hospitals to hold all the sick people from undulant fever and tuberculosis and you know milkborne you know diseases and all this stuff. And, and I'm saying, Missouri. Is that happening in Missouri? What do they have? A special Missouri UV yeah. filter over the whole state that enables yeah. this, right? I mean, it, it's yeah, preposterous. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. In, in in Amsterdam, in Amsterdam, you could go into the airport in Amsterdam to a vending machine, put a euro in, it brings out a paper cup and gives you raw milk out of a vending machine in the Amsterdam airport in in the Netherlands. Wow. Um, so. <laughs> you, you just you just shake your head at these guys when you say you know merchant of fear. You're exactly you're exactly right. And be, because when people are fearful, they will accept anything for security. And, Absolutely. And, it, and and there's a lot of money, as you know, there's a lot of money being made in the security business. I'll I'll make things secure. For you in your job, I'll make things secure for you in your retirement. I'll make things secure for you medically. I'll make things secure for your for you educationally. You know, um, uh, security sells, especially when people are are fearful. Well, I mean, our one of our founders said, "Those who sacrifice liberty for safety deserve neither." And I think the modern maybe rewrite of that is, "Those who sacrifice uh, security for safety long enough." Uh, security for liberty long enough will be deprived of both. I mean, sooner or later, that's where you're going to end up. You're not. Go it's not that you won't deserve it. You won't have either, because yeah. if we don't, I mean, if we keep treating all of these systems, food systems, obviously one of the most key ones. Because I don't know about you, but I eat every day. Um, eventually, the unsustainability of these systems will become evident. And where's your security when you're worried about where your next meal is? Right. Right. Well, you know, um, whenever I get into the discussion like this, I always head toward this, this axiom that the Romans had. The Romans had an axiom that you could tell when a country was virile and strong because it didn't have very many laws. That you, you could tell on the scale of, of, of um, strength or weakness where a culture was by the number of laws that it had. And what it said was that as a, as a culture becomes weak, vapid, timid and paranoid, it, it can't actually do anything, but boy, it, make, it can make laws. And so what we see is, a, is an incredible proliferation of laws in our country as we head down the tank, as we, and, and, and this fear is all a, a, a part of it. You know, I've talked to my congressman about this on, on some, some of these issues. And he just looks at me, and he's, you know, supposedly a, a, he's a, he's a public and not a sinner, but um, he, he says, well, but the people expect me to do something. 
You know, and, and, and listen, listen. Whenever, whenever my friends start talking about gridlock in Washington, oh yeah, my first response is, "Hey, that's what I want to see." Every time yeah. Washington does something, yeah. it hurts me. So oh, we're on the, the same page. We have, the, the more they don't, the best thing that could happen is for them not to do anything. That yeah. would be that would be fine. But, yeah. Uh, but but it's amazing. What, whatever whatever happens, whatever happens. Uh, I, I, tell, I tell my liberal friends, I say, listen, you know, think about what it does to, the, to, to your affirmation as a citizen, to your power and affirmation as a citizen, that whenever something happens, the first reaction is, we need a law, or we need a program, or we need a government agency. I mean, that should be the, that should be the last resort way, way down at the bottom. And, and if that's your first resort response to a societal problem, regardless of what it is, that is the most citizen-defeating, disempowering philosophy you can express. Uh, I completely agree. Now, the thing is, all of these regulations, rules, impediments, hurdles, problems exist. I've heard you speak before. I've read your book, so I know some of these. But could you give the audience maybe a couple examples of ways, as a farmer, that you had these impediments in front of you, and you've creatively, creatively designed systems around them uh, to get around bureaucracy or to get around laws and regulations, so you can effectively market your product? Yeah. Okay. Well. Um, yeah. So. So one way is to. Um, uh, we, we had to do this for a few years until the dust settled. Uh, they said we couldn't, we couldn't say, you know, where you're taking your turkeys to that custom slaughterhouse. So they came in and told us that uh, we couldn't do that because um, because if the if the money if the money was based on a dead you know on a dead carcass uh, amount that. It was still it was a it was illegal sale. So anyway, so we started selling things live. Uh, so we sold a beef for a dollar, a whole cow for a dollar. It was uh, fifty cents for a half, twenty five cents for a quarter, and then charged uh, charged a handling fee to to take them to the slaughterhouse. And the handling fee was based on the carcass price. <laughs> and. So what's really funny about that is in Virginia, we don't collect sales tax on service. We only collect sales tax on product. So when we went from selling beef to selling shipping and handling service, we went from several thousand dollars worth of sales tax we sent in to a few pennies. And this, is, this is the kind of stupidity of the, uh, you know, of the, of the bureaucracy. Um, you know, there's a... You know, the lady in uh, Minnesota that sells her cheese, you know, we, so, you know, a lot of people sell, sell cheese as, uh, or, or milk as uh, bath product, as, as um, you know, uh, bath soap. Um, you know, so you, you just, you rename it, you call it something different. Um, the lady in Minnesota got in trouble for selling her cheese, so she called the state and said, you know, what, uh, what are the regulations on fish bait? And I said, well, there aren't really any. You just have to be edible. She said, okay. So she now sells fish bait coldly, fish belly cheddar, cheddar fish bait swim, and uh, no, no, nobody touches her because it's, uh, it's sold as fish food. So, um, you know, there's a guy in uh, Ohio that uh, they said, well, you know, you have to have a, 
an impermeable wall on your uh, processing facility. And he thought about it a little while, and so he built a hoop house over his um, over his little chicken slaughter pad there. Hoop house over it. And they came out, and they said, no, 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 we meant a wall. He said, you said impervious, right? They said, yeah. They said, he said, go on the other side, took a water hose, sprayed it up against the plastic. He said, you get wet over there? Well, no, well, it's impervious, isn't it? They had to pass him because of the impermeable wall. Huh. So, um, you know, one of the, one of the uh, ones that we did here for our uh, intern was, um, this is one where I actually called our, our county people in. I said, look, we need intern housing on the farm. We can't build any uh, housing because, you know, we're an agriculture district, so we can't build any housing, I mean, not even a, a anything, tiny house or anything. I said, well, we need to house these folks here. We need to, we, yeah, they want to come, we want to teach, we want to do this. I said, I want you to come back to me and tell me what I can do without getting a special use per, permit or a, a rezoning. Okay, give us a month. So they went, they came back in a month. They said, well, you can do five things in the county without a permit. The first is a, a, an agriculture building, like a barn or a shed or something, agriculture building. Second is a tree house. So, you know, Swiss Family Robinson, if it's a tree, there's no, there's no permit required. Yeah, it can be one foot high. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It can be one foot high. Exactly. Exactly. Yep, one foot high. Number, number three is if it floats, so like a houseboat on a pond. No requirements, no regulations. Number four is if it's on a chassis, so an RV or, or, you know, if it's mobile, it's on a chassis. And number five is a hunt camp. So we opted Ooh. to build a hunt camp. Oh. So uh, our interns are housed in a hunt camp. Uh, and, and interestingly, the ordinance doesn't say what you have to hunt, so we have the polyface hunt camp. We're hunting for the truth. <laughs> ah, I was going to say hunting for grasshoppers, but okay. <laughs> So I've got one for you that I think you'll you'll like. We're okay. working with this farm in West Virginia. I want to sell raw milk. West Virginia is probably the most totalitarian yeah. raw milk state there is. No herd shares, and they even closed the pet food loophole. You cannot sell um, raw milk for pets because your dog might die right if he drinks raw right. milk. So it seemed right. like it was completely closed. Well, Joel, did you know that milk makes a perfectly good soil amendment? Ah, right. Of yeah, so, so this product is not to be used uh, for food, and in accordance with federal and local state laws, uh, is a soil amendment only. For best results, keep cold. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, my, that's great. I mean, I think that there is always the way around it, if you think, because the people that do these things, they operate in a very limited thinking environment, and we as small food, you know, small producers of, of, of agricultural product, by the very nature, we have to think in a very... Uh, limitless way right. because we're right. going to run like you're. I don't care how good your operation is. You probably got one of the most fine-tuned operations in the country. I guarantee you, in the next month, something is going to happen. You're going to have to go. Well, heck, how do I deal with this? Right. Yeah. That's the life yeah. of a farmer, right? So sure, since you're sure. always right. doing that, if you apply that same thinking, there's always a way. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, I've always told people to remember these these bureaucrats. Um, you know, they're, 
the, the bureaucracy is a bit like uh, like a septic tank. The biggest turds rise to the top, and, uh, and and so they, they tend to they tend to be they tend to be very uncreative. And, yeah. And and you know if you if you can't be more creative than a bureaucrat, uh, shame on you. And it doesn't mean you can get around everything. But it does mean that if we here, – here's what I admonish people. I say, look, if you put – if we – I say just we as the, as the kind of a lunatic fringe, if we put as much effort in creatively figuring out how to circumvent the rules instead of how to, how to get enough financing to comply with the rules, we'd probably get, get farther – we'd get farther faster than trying to comply with everything. No, I completely agree. I mean, that's 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 a case for a lot of homeschooling right there too, because they're being programmed by the same educational centers. But um, you know, I know for instance that you really have a libertarian bent to you. Right. How would you say your libertarian ideas have contributed to your worldview just overall? <laughs> well, um, I, I'm a I'm a kind of a Ron Paul. Um, uh, guy, um, so my my worldview is um, hoe your own garden, keep your fist out of the other guy's face, and lead by example. And that has pretty big policy ramifications. Um, I I think that we we meddle. I mean, my the, the whole idea of liberty is that. Um, I don't. I don't meddle in your affairs. I mean, that, whether it's the government meddling or me meddling in your affairs, um, the whole idea of liberty is is I, I, I can have my affairs, and and you can have your affairs, and we can intersect wherever we want to. But as long as your fist doesn't hit my nose, then you know, have at it. That's great. And so I'm. I'm for uh, you know closing down most of our foreign military bases. I'm for um, you know um, feeding ourselves and having a, an extremely small federal government. Um, no no redistributed redistributed uh, uh, wealth. Let 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 philanthropy work. And um, anyway. It's, you know, pretty because here's the thing: you can't have you can't have thriving small business and big government. The, the two are incompatible. And, no, I agree. And so, um, if if we can if we can dismantle the scope, the intrusiveness, and the power of government, we will actually unleash the scope, power. And uh, and and uh, whatever uh, interest, uh, expl- uh, innovation of you know of, of entrepreneurship, and um, one of the reasons that the, that America, that the U.S. right now leads the world in you know the internet. One of the reasons that we we lead the, you know Amazon and, and everything. One of the reasons we lead the world in in these things is because they came on so fast. That the government didn't regulate them. Sure. And and food, food is one of the oldest economic sectors of the country, 
And so it necessarily has the greatest amount of regulation on it per, you know, per dollar, per pound, per whatever, uh, because it is the oldest sector of the economy, not the youngest. And so you can, you can see the fiber, you can just go down through the sectors of the economy and, and the, and you can, you can see the vibrancy of the different sectors based on how long they've been regulated. And it's pretty interesting. And so food is, you know, one of the, one of the oldest ones. The uh, Food Safety Inspection Service came into being uh, in uh, what, 1908. And uh, so, you know, that was, that was one of the big ones. Oh, it's been with us since the dawn of civilization. Grain bills used to be currency. I mean, that's it's it's one of government's tools of control. I'll, I'll tell right. you, they, like making me mad at government's not hard. Um, right. But you are one of the people that, in one little piece, made me probably more angry at my government than I've ever been in my life. And I don't know if it'll spring to mind what I'm talking about, but you wrote a piece I don't know several years ago about something you were invited to with improving basically rural America and farms and, you know, so that because people were, young people were leaving and going to the cities and there weren't enough farmers left. And I think you were at least a little bit excited about it initially. But what it came down to in the end is that our government was concerned that they wouldn't have enough places to recruit people for the military from if we lost too much of our rural base because they're the ones that go off to war. Yeah, uh, yeah. I have to tell you, I walked around, I looked like Frankenstein's monster for about a week after I read that. Even though I intuitively knew it, to actually realize that they would state it yeah. infuriated me beyond words. Yes, yes. Well, that was stated by, um, by, by uh, Vilsack, uh, who was Obama's Secretary of Agriculture, and I was in the room, heard it in my own words. Yeah, it was quite a thing. I was... Uh, invited to this think tank thing with uh, Governor Terry McAuliffe, who at that time was running for governor, and he wanted to convene this think tank thing and, and brought in uh, uh, Secretary of Agriculture Bill Back, um, which was a, a big, you know, it was a big power play here for these uh, agriculture leaders in Virginia to, to be with the you know federal Secretary of Agriculture. Oh, you know, it was a big, it was a big uh, backstretching thing. And, and in his remarks, uh, Bill Back said. You know, we need to preserve these farms because our best, our best soldiers in our military come from farm kids that grew up on farms. And I, yeah, I just, I just about fell on the floor. And, and, and nobody in the room even batted an eye. You know, it was just, eh, you know, whatever. And boy, I was, I was so fired up about that. I, I did that posting and boy, did it get, in fact, uh, in fact, uh, McAuliffe, um, I mean, his, his people, they threatened me. I mean, they, his uh, lieutenant, you know, demanded that I take it down and, and uh, said, you know, you weren't supposed to take notes at that meeting, and that was a close, you know. And I, I said, look, nobody gave me protocols. I don't get advice of these things. If there was a bunch of protocols that all of us were supposed to adhere to, nobody gave me any protocol. I figure anything that the governor and the secretary of Ag says, I said, I don't have closed meetings. You know, if I'm meeting with a politician, it's open. I don't do any closed door stuff. And um, and so I said, if I violated the protocol, well then you should have told me what the protocol was. But in good faith, you invite me to come to a thing that's a, that's, that's got these politicians in it. I'm assuming, well, what, you know, what's the secret? And, and not let, let me explain. We didn't really mean it that way, and it was misinterpreted. No, you take that, and, and you know that's one of those things about the short sightedness of a bureaucrat. 
Do you, do you not understand if I take this down, it won't matter now? That's not how the Internet works, right? Like, once, once it's there, especially someone with any kind of a platform such as yourself, it just went 80 other places. It's never going away. You can't take it back. Right, right. And, he, and, and in fact, you know, there were several, you know, backs and forth and backs and forth. And, and the, the, the final one uh, was, was basically a threat. He said, well, if you have any trouble from the state, you're sure not going to get any help from us. And that was kind of the last. No, I didn't put that in the posting. Yeah. But that was kind of the final. I that was. was the final exchange <laughs> that, uh, that, that basically a threat, you know, um, if, if you have any... If any if any of your if any of our people come around you know uh, causing you trouble, um, you're not going to get any help from us. Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna make sure you pay. And and uh, it was it was just that was unbelievable. Isn't but, uh, it amazing to go out to be a farmer and end up in a war for liberty? I mean, really, doesn't that seem like our country? I mean, because you've been in the crosshairs of things like that simply because. You you want to be able to provide people with good clean food and not destroy the earth while doing it. I mean that's in the end that's your position that as I understand it. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And, you know, it's interesting if I could use a, a little uh, biblical injection here. A lot of people, you know, wonder wonder you know about the role of government and actually you know the Bible gives us a pretty clear view there in uh, in First Peter where it says the role of government is to be a terror to evil and an encourager of righteousness. It's, it's, it's black and white. It's very plain. And when you get into these kinds of battles, you realize, you realize that our government has become an encourager of evil and a tyrant to righteousness. I, I, or or a, a terror to righteousness. And it's it complete, completely flipped... Uh, on its head, the whole role of government, and yeah, and you know, I live close enough to D.C. I'm three hours from D.C. You know, so I, I get up and testify to congressional hearings and stuff. There are numerous people who would like me to be a lot more involved. In fact, you know, the libertarians tried to draft me to run for governor of Virginia and things like that. And and you know, I tell these guys that you know what? Every time I go down there and testify or do something, you know, when when I'm pushed to do it, I said. I always, I just feel like I've spent the day in a septic tank. It, you know, it, it's awful to say. No, it's true it's though. Awful, awful to say, but but when you, I, I was down. We we actually uh, we actually won one round here in the state once, and uh, I was the point man for for our side, and so they, I, I was chosen to represent our side in the presentation to the ag subcommittee uh, of the Senate, and um, and here were. You know, there were, whatever, uh, six, seven senators sitting at the big head table. And all of us, you know, peasants on our side were, you know, filling the room all the way back. I mean, we were standing room only out in the hall. You know, we got our folks out there. So I was the official spokesman for our side. And, and so, you know, they called me to come up and talk. And I'm looking at the name cards. I mean, I don't know all these fellows, right? And I'm looking at the name cards, because once I got up close right to the table and did my speech, then I could see all the name cards, and I knew who everybody was at the table. And here, sitting with the senators at the table, at the table, was the Virginia Poultry Federation, the 
Corn Growers Association, the Farm Bureau Federation. They had like three or four lobbyists. I mean, these are industry lobbyists. <laughs> no, no, even not even a semblance of decorum, of separation, of not being owned and bought by these people. They they actually have you know six senators at the table, but they have ten people sitting there, and four of them are in, are the industry people, and and they act like this is business as usual. Oh, they don't hide it, Joel. I mean, it was it was it was just it was just unbelievable. I'll I'll never forget it. The the, the pure it leaves me speechless. I mean. Um, uh, why would why would anybody why would any elected official allow themselves allow themselves to be perceived as as in bed with these folks? Um, at least let them sit out in the audience with the rest of us. I mean, it's not inspired for them to be there, but to but to actually have them sitting at the table of administration of of, of uh, just. Words, words fail me. I, I could not believe the audacity, the sheer, unembarrassed. Is like, is there no shame? Is there really no shame? And there is. There well, there, no there isn't. If, if you're familiar at all with the party due system in Congress, the way that works, let's say you do get talked into running for uh, Congress, and you become, you know, Representative Joel Salatin, the Honorable Salatin. Uh -huh. You go down there, and even though you ran completely counter to the party, you're going to have to caucus with one party or the other. Whichever one you caucus with, they're going to walk up to you on day one after your freshman briefing. They're going to hand you a binder. And they're going to tell you to go to a little telemarketing place across the thing, and you have to start raising money for the party. It's called, and it's called the party due system. This is completely legal, by the way. And they'll even tell you who to call. <laughs> so you've gone there beholden to nobody, and day one you're going to be beholden to somebody. And if you, if you don't do it, they can't punish you or throw you out. But guess what you get to do, Joel? You get to vote yes or no, and that is all. You don't yeah, get on yeah. a committee. You don't get anything. And then there's a, I'm telling you, your blood's about to boil. There is a price list. If you want to sponsor a bill, if you want to co-sponsor a bill, if you want to be a co-chair, if you want to be a chairman, there's a price list. This is completely legal because they made it legal. And you raise X amount of money for your committee, and then you can be on that committee or you can sponsor legislation. And the money has got to come. Either you're independently wealthy and you can write the checks, or you've got to go raise it from lobbyists. And once you know that, then you just give up on that system. I mean, because yeah, yeah. Well, I, I say it's like it, putting new congressmen in place and expecting it to change the nature of Congress is like expecting the next row of teeth that comes in on a shark to change the nature of the shark. <laughs> it, it, it's not going to happen. On that, yeah. as we wrap up, but, you, you recently – oh, go ahead. Yeah, but, but, you know, uh, we could be completely cynical or we could appreciate the fact that now – with the internet, with the ability mm -hmm. to—I uh, mean, I don't like—I don't like Trump's tweets or anything like that. But I will tell you, I will tell you that the the internet, I think, has made it has made it has made the possibility of cheaply telling the truth to lots of people more possible, and and. Um, you know, maybe we will just, I mean, certainly our trajectory is going down the tubes, but, but at the same time, uh, the, little, the little optimist in me uh, says, yep, I, I get that system, 
but you know, where's the where's the junior congressman that will go in and let his constituents know here's how the system works? I'm not going to play their game, and 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 tell the world why why couldn't there be uh, 30 or 40 congressmen who spill the beans on the system? Yeah, that would be great, and you know, it's it's finding them and and keeping them. Yeah, I guess right. pure pure long enough for them to be that yeah. many. I mean, you had Ron yeah. Paul, and one of the things Ron Paul said at the end of his career was, "I really didn't get anything done." Yeah, and I think what yeah. he did do is he awoke a lot of people. That's that's oh, what he did, you know. But yes, uh, yes indeed, he sure did. People, people. Uh, I'll tell you, he's got a fan base that is that would jump over a cliff for him. So you recently spoke, speaking of Liberty, at something called the Red Pill Expo in Bozeman, Montana. I wanted to go. I just couldn't get there. Um, but you didn't really talk much about farming or permaculture or anything like that. Can you tell me more about what, in our audience, more about what you shared with folks at the Red Pill? Uh, mainly what I shared with them was the, uh, the burdensome regulatory environment on innovative food things, the, the kind of things that you and I have just talked about for the last little while. Uh, and, and how difficult it is for innovators to be able to enter the, um, you know, in, enter the marketplace. And um, so, yeah, that's that's. Yeah, I didn't talk about you know organic farming or pasture farming or anything like that. It was it was mainly the you know overburdensome regulatory climate against innovative innovative food options um, that that keep people from being able to have choice. And um, it. Went over, got a standing ovation. They they must have liked it. <laughs> Very cool, man. So, can you tell people maybe about a few of your books that they might be interested in getting getting their hands on? Yeah, sure. Well, uh, one would certainly, you know, if you're just looking for kind of a broad cultural perspective, uh, folks, this ain't normal. Um, is is kind of the broadest cultural where I. Kind of, uh, I parse out our current culture and, and say what, what we've got just isn't normal. And um, and obviously, my my thinking with that is that, that what is normal will stand the test of time, and things tend to go back to normalcy, you know, by hook or by crook. And so, what would normalcy, you know, look look like if we went back to it? Um, if you're, you know, if you're looking for uh, the issues that we've been talking about here during this time. The uh, everything I want to do is illegal. Um, you know, I've had numerous. You know, do you know that that book has been uh, used in numerous um, senior government classes in high school? I've had teachers say every American needs to read this book uh, you know, to understand the, the situation. And I've also had people say that book could be written for plumbers, electricians, doctors, you know, anyone who's in business for themselves. It's, it's, a, it's a similar uh, situation. If you want to farm, um, you know, my book, You Can Farm, uh, is, the, is the most eclectic of those, and I've got a, uh, you know, the, the graduate level now of Beyond You Can Farm is one I've just released uh, about a month ago, and that is Your Successful Farm Business, and it goes into... The, the, the business of, uh, of of farming and with a lot of lot of stories and things that we've learned since you since you can farm you can farm is the is the foundation that's you know uh, secondary school and then uh, and then your your college degree is this, is this new one if you just want to know well what is 
you know, what does this kind of farming thing look like? Aren't farmers all the same? Isn't a cow a cow and a wheat field a wheat field and a farm a farm? Um, the sheer ecstasy of being a lunatic farmer is my, is my uh, soul, I call it my soul book. It's, it's where I really uh, bear down and answer that question. No, I'm different. And, and, uh, and here's, here's where we are different. And, you know, I, I've, been, I've, I've been called, you know, the lunatic all the time. And I could either be, um, you know, uh, frustrated about it or uh, the sheer ecstasy of it. it it's fun. You know, there's, it, it's fun to not have to um, get your chemical license renewed every year to wear um, hazmat suits at your farm and get cancer um, because you overexposure to chemicals. Um, and, there, and, and just the whole uh, mindset that we operate under, you know, one chapter is no crooked fences. We don't, we don't do any straight fences. Why? Because the topography doesn't lie straight. And so talk about why we have crooked, fen- crooked fences. Um, so it, it, it's a lot of fun, and it, you'll, you'll just laugh your head off through it. It's, it's, a, it's a fun book. And isn't it interesting that the people that are doing things in the most uh, chemical-free, harmless way, and it's in all things. Like you mentioned, you know, everything I want to do as illegal could apply to any industry. You know, you look at the right. same thing. They call they call people that first seek, uh, you know, non-harmful herbs in health or changing diet and health alternative, right? And yeah. mainstream is putting poison in your body. Not that there's not a place for pharma. There's things that are cured by pharmaceutical drugs, and God, if I get one, I want them. But sure, like, sure. why would that be your first step? And and so the the person that believes that animals are supposed to move, that they're supposed to eat <laughs> cows eat grass, that chickens mm-hmm. eat bugs, is the lunatic. And the person that takes a chicken and locks it into a building and guarantees it eats a vegetarian diet the only way you can through confinement, because a chicken will eat bugs, it's going to do it. Or that takes a pig and puts it into a pen where it can't even stand up and turn around, that's normal. But the person that actually thinks a pig is supposed to be able to go be a pig is Mm -hmm. a freaking lunatic. I just don't understand our world. Yeah. Yeah, that, 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 that's crazy. And uh, I would just I would just promote one other book uh, that that, uh, that I've done is that the marvelous pigness of pigs. And uh, you know if you're if you're a faith if you're a faith based person, and um, and you just uh, this organic thing you know uh, uh, that that sounds like a bunch of you know uh, greeny weeny tree hugger you know liberal democrat types. Uh, I'm not sure about this. You know, let, let's go to Chick-fil-A. Um, if 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 you're you know faith-based and you're wondering you know how does this square? Um, that's the book that I wrote. That I, I called that my coming out book. You know, I'm, I I started years ago uh, when I got so tired of being you know pigeonholed because I was a you know organic farmer. So that means you're you're in favor of abortion and you're in favor of uh, the, the National Education Association and the whole, you know, public school education lobby, you want more taxes, uh, you know, blah, blah, blah. So I kind of took on this, this moniker, Christian Libertarian Environmentalist Capitalist Lunatic, to, to you know, to, to go eclectic and say, hey, don't put me in a box. And, um, and so if, if you're faith-based and some of this stuff is a little bit, yeah, I'm not sure about this, uh, Marvelous Pigness of Pigs, Will will help to um, uh, uh, I think uh, acquaint. It, it's written to the faith community, 
of, uh, of explaining these kind of principles and, and how we should, you know, how we should live and how we should uh, eat and act and, and trying to, you know, trying to put, um, well, the question is, is what I believe in the pew showing up on the menu? You know, uh, that, that's the question. And, uh, and, and, and does God care? You know, does, does God care? And so... Um, can't help but give a little plug for that one, too. Very cool, man. So uh, before we let you go, uh, your, your website, of course, is Polyface Farms. I'll make sure that we have a link there, and I'll make sure that we have a link to all of the books that you mentioned. I was, I was typing them into the show notes as you were naming them off, uh, so I'll make sure people can get a hold of those real quick. Do you have maybe any kind of, I know you were just like Red Pill or whatever, do you have any upcoming things that you'd like to let people know about where they can come listen to you speak? Because I know if, if, if you're in my area, I'm going to come see you. Uh, well, I'm going to be I'm going to be in uh, Oregon. Uh, the way the way to do this is my speaking schedule is on the website. Okay. So uh, one that I one that I couple that I would push is um, I'm going to be in in uh, I'm going to be doing a leadership institute the leadership institute um, in D.C. It's a you know it's, it's a Ron Paul uh, uh, spinoff. September sixth, I'll be there. Um, September 2, I'm doing a uh, fundraiser for the Farm and Consumer Legal Defense Fund in Portland, or in near Portland, Oregon. And um, one that I'll really push is September 23 and 24, I'm doing my first Marvelous Pigments of Pigs uh, conference and preaching at the Movie Theater Church in Indianapolis, Indiana. So that's September, September 23 and 24. So, uh, yeah, there's a lot of stuff coming up, but just jump on that. Uh, website. Look at the look at the uh, schedule. Put the schedule tab. You'll see where I am. And uh, if you can't go, uh, send a friend. Well, Joel, let me tell you something. I appreciate you being with us today. I appreciate the work you've done. I think you've brought more. And I talk about Ron Paul not getting a lot done as a congressman, uh, but bringing awareness. I think you've done more to bring awareness to these issues than anybody else in our industry. So I thank you for that as well. I'll let you go because I, I know you probably got animals to tend to. I know I do. I got ducks looking at me through the window. So, uh, uh, man, thank you so much for, for your, your work, your service, uh, your commitment, and for being with us today on the show. Thank you, Jack. It's been a real honor. Thank you so much. So great interview with Joel Salatin. Um, I mentioned the article that he wrote about the head of the USDA or the Secretary of Ag, I guess, saying that, you know, we needed to make sure that we kept things viable economically in rural America for farmers because we get our best soldiers from there. Basically, the farms are farming cannon fodder. I, I really recommend that in addition to maybe considering picking up some of Joel's books or going to hear him speak where he speaks... And I have links to all that in the show notes. So you consider reading that article. It's free. I have it linked to. It's um, it's disturbing. It will anger you. But nothing could tell you more about how the government really views the people than understanding that this is something that was just said and everybody was okay with it. Keep that in mind for when we get to our song of the day. also want to remind you guys, one of the ways you can help support Our show and the work that we do is simply by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. Next time you're going to buy something on Amazon, just go to tspaz.com first and click a link there. And then whatever you do, you help support the show. That's, that's how simple it is. And, of course, I have items of the day reviewed for you guys there uh, at tspaz.com and on the survivalpodcast.com. They're basically the same place. 
And uh, today I have a product for you that I brought to you guys last year, but I think this is one of the coolest products um, that you can find for a lot of us, you know, in this world. And that is, it's a plastic latch with a stainless steel hinge for your standard igloo coolers. Now, some of you are like, I don't give a damn about that, Jack. What are you talking about? But if you own igloo coolers, which most people do, what happens sooner or later? The, the, the hinges, they break. And you can buy new ones for a few bucks, and they're made out of plastic, and w what happens to those? They break. The, 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 the thing itself never breaks. It's the hinge, the plastic. Like, plastic's just not made to go back and forth over and over again. It's just not. So what these do is they let you put a metal hinge on your plastic latch, and it lasts probably as long as you'd ever need it to. Um, and you also can get hinges. I have a link for the hinges as well for the backside because those tend to break as well over time because, again, it's plastic. There's a reason that metal is used in situations where plastic isn't and where you have high amounts of movement and moving parts, metal generally outlasts plastic. I know it's crazy. Um, but I'll tell you what I know about many of you. You have a cooler so, or two or three somewhere in your home or on your farm or in your homestead whatever, And it's got broken latches on it, and you just ain't got around to fixing it. Or you fixed it before, and, and, and they're broken again. Why don't you get some metal ones? They're only a couple bucks more than the all-plastic ones. You can learn all about them at tspaz.com today. Just click a link to see all the reviews. It'll be the most current review. And check it out. And remember this with, with stuff on my reviews. If you have a suggestion, send me an email. Jack at the survivalpodcast.com. Put TSPC in the subject line. Tell me your suggestion of a product that you use on Amazon, and I'll take a look at it and think about reviewing it. Or if there's something you've been looking for and you want a recommendation, tell me. I'll go find something and work it into my reviews for you. But these things, they're again, they're Igloo hybrid stainless and plastic latches for Igloo uh, coolers. Again, most of us, that's what we use. And I'll tell you what, this is a simple, cheap upgrade that uh, will, you know, it's not that it's so much better in of itself when they all work. It'll just prevent you from having to constantly do it. Oh, like fix it once and be done with it, that type of thing. Check it out again at tspaz.com. Or remember, whenever you shop um, online through tspaz.com, you help support the Survival Podcast and the work that we do. And you guys in Canada and the United Kingdom now, you can shop through tspaz as well. It'll redirect you right to your own sites, and you can get your own stuff, and you still help support the work that we do. Next up, let's talk about our uh, YouTuber of the day. YouTube channel of the day today was suggested by a listener. It is called Cheap RV Living. They are promoting nomadic tribalism in car, van, and RV. It's a really cool channel. Uh, they've got about 76,000 subscribers. Uh, they've been uh, YouTubing since February of 2012. 9.2 million views. Some really interesting content. And right up the alley of the preparedness-minded individual. Even if you're not going to live the nomadic lifestyle, when you do, you have to be prepared. So check them out again. Cheap RV Living is the YouTube channel. Link in today's show notes. That brings us to our song of the day. And I said Joel's article would come back here. This song was originally uh, written and performed by Bob Dylan. I actually have a cover of it by Tatiana Maruz. 
Now, Tatiana is like one of the first independent artists to release a cryptocurrency that fans could use to buy her albums and stuff like that, called Tatiana Coin. She also is the host of a show called The Tatiana Show, and they focus on cryptocurrency and other things to do with liberty. Uh, one of those people, like you know, most people that are thinking people would say this about anybody, like, don't agree with everything they say, but like a lot of what they say. That's how I feel about her and her show. Uh, kind of a cool show. It's a show I've listened to at least a few times, and I don't, you know, I'm podcaster, but I don't actually listen to a lot of podcasts. Uh, so I think she's worth checking out. I have a link to her uh, her podcast as well, but she's a musician. She actually wrote the Bitcoin song, which is like the song for Bitcoin, right? So I think that's kind of cool too. But she did this cover of this Bob Dylan song called Masters of War. This is a deep song, and it's a very different song. There's no chorus to it. It's just one long song. And um, here's some facts about that song. Dylan wrote this song in criticism of American leaders and officials. It was meant to be a realization of the times, what war was coming to, and why war became a pointless act rather than a means of defense. In the liar notes to the freewheeling Bob Dylan, Dill says of Masters of War, I've never really written anything like that before. I don't sing songs which hope people will die, but I couldn't help it with this one. The song is a s sort of striking out, a reaction to the last straw, a feeling of what you can do. Um, here's some of the lyrics to this song, just to kind of drive this home. Come, you masters of war, you that built all the guns, you that build the death planes, you that build the big bombs, you that hide behind walls, you that hide behind desks, I just want you to know... I can see through your masks. You, you that have never done nothing but build to destroy, you play with my world like it's your little toy. You put a gun in my hand and you hide from my eyes. You turn and run farther when the fast bullets fly. Like Judas of old, you lie and deceive. A world war can be won, you want me to believe. But I see through your eyes and I see through your brain. I see through the water that runs down my drain. You fasten the triggers for others to fire. Then you sit back and watch when the death count gets higher. You hide in your mansion as young people's blood flows out of their bodies and is buried in the mud. You've thrown the worst fear that can ever be hurled, fear to bring a child into the world. For threatening my baby, unborn and unnamed, you ain't worth the blood that runs Through your veins. It actually gets worse from there. But of course this was written during the Vietnam War. There was a lot of anti-war sentiment back then. But I've said this before. The United States has developed a remarkable tolerance for war. The less it has cost us personally to wage it. When we were able to start waging wars with technology and actually keep our body counts down, we stopped worrying about the body counts of the people in these foreign lands who are not part of whatever it is we're fighting, the innocent civilians stuck in the middle. And when we got to the point where we could start waging war on a visa card, which is what our national debt's all about right now, we became even more tolerant of the concept of war. But let me tell you how this song ends. This is what Dylan had to say to the people behind this. And I hope that you die. And your death 
will come soon. I will follow your casket in the pale afternoon. And I'll watch while you're lowered down to your deathbed. And I'll stand over your grave till I'm sure that you're dead. It's how Dylan felt about the merchants of war. Very much how I feel about the merchants of war today. It really is. It's very much how I feel about people that would view the children of farmers as something to be harvested so they could be sent off to fight the war that our leaders start but never have to bleed in. I know that's a bit somber, but I'd like to believe, and this is why I'm such a fan of our guest today, that if we truly build a new nation of farmers, we can change that. We can change that. Uh, it makes me think of, I believe it's a Chinese proverb, it is better to be a warrior in a garden than a, garden in a gardener in a war. And, and, and that's what I think we need to have the mindset of. We need to be the warriors that this country is capable of being. We need to be warriors in a garden. And only willing to spill blood when it is necessary to defend life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. With that, that has been Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Come, you masters of war, you that build all the gods, you that build the death plays, you that build all the bombs, you that hide behind walls, you that hide I just want you to know I can see through your mask You that never done nothing But built to destroy You play with my world Like it's your little toy You put a gun in his hand And you hide from his eyes And you turn and run farther when the fast bullets fly Like Judas of old You lie and deceive A world war can be won You want me to believe But I see through your eyes And I see through your brain Like I see through the water that runs down my drain You fasten all the triggers For the others to fire Then you sit back and watch When the death count gets higher You hide in your mansion As young people's blood Flows out of their bodies and is buried in the mud You've thrown the worst fear 
that can never be heard. Fear to bring children into the world. For threatening my Talk out of turn. You might say that I'm young. You might say I'm a bird. But there's one thing I know. Though I'm younger than you, that even Jesus would never forgive what you do. Let me ask you one question. Is your money that good? Will it buy you forgiveness? Do you think that it could? And I think you will find when your death takes its toll. All the money you made will never buy back your soul. And I hope that you die. Your death will come soon. I will follow your casket on a pale afternoon, and I'll watch while you're lowered down into your deathbed, and I'll stand over your grave till I'm sure that you're dead. 